All of our previous lessons that we've talked about, for the most part, we've talked about external boundaries. We've talked about having a close watch on what we allow into our, our, our lives and, and what we need to keep out. We're going to take a little bit different look this morning. This morning we're going to look at boundaries and yourself. We're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about our internal boundaries. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, it says that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. And I think there's another scripture, but I don't have it, where it talks about, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that you are not your own? So we need to realize that there's an expectation from God and in the scriptures that says, we need to be responsible to control, we, need, we are responsible to control our bodies, which involves having healthy internal boundaries. We are responsible to control our own bodies, which is have, involves having healthy internal boundaries. And in your mind, you're already thinking, what are internal boundaries? What are they talking about? Well, what he did is he went through, if, you're, if, you, re, if you read this chapter this past week, then it'll be fresh on your mind, but he went through and listed an awful lot of boundaries that tend to get violated um, by ourselves. We do it to ourselves, so they're kind of out-of-control boundaries. The first one we're going to look at that he uses is eat the area of eating. Eating can be a form of out-of-control boundaries. First of all, you have both your chronic and binging type eaters, overeaters, who suffer from an internal self-boundary problem. You know, maybe you haven't looked at it that way, but we need to look at it that way. Both chronic and binging overeaters suffer from internal self-boundary problems. It's something that's going on within them. The hard part about internal boundaries is they're not always visible to everybody else. But in this case, as this boundary gets more out of control, it affects our body in such a way that everybody else can tell. What makes overeating especially painful is that overweight is visible to others. Overweight is visible to others. And you might say those who are anorexic, underweight is very visible. And I'm sure each one of us has seen somebody who struggles with anorexia and how thin they are and what's happening to their body, as well as somebody who's extremely overweight there's something going on within themselves that's causing them to think that that's some type of, you know, if I'm, if I feel better if I eat. But until we look at underneath those boundaries, unless we look underneath that, that thought process, we won't come to deal with or realize what the real issue is. People with this type of out-of-control behavior feel an ener enormous amount of self-hatred and shame about their condition. Most people who are struggling with weight if you can sit down and get them to talk about it, that you'll see and hear it in their voice. They're just so frustrated. They're so frustrated. And they're angry at themselves, and they feel a lot of shame because, you know, why can everybody else look good and I can't? I mean, I can really relate to that. You, you work, you watch what you eat, and your body just does something different. But at the same time, although my body may process food differently, then I need to understand that my controls are going to be different than that person over there. Caleb can eat the leg off a cow and not gain a pound. If I even look at part of the quarter, I gain two or three pounds. <laughs> so it's a matter of coming to understand what are your internal boundaries, and they're going to be different for everybody. Food tend to, tends to act as a false boundary or a false 
closeness, a closeness. Some use of it to avoid intimacy. Just some, some potential uh, reasons why food might be such a problem. If it feels comfortable, then you know, hear, we hear George talk about all the time comfort foods. Certain things that we eat that are not necessarily good for us that we eat a lot of, but for some reason we eat them and there's this physiological reaction and we just kind of feel like that's a boundary for us and it's a safe boundary. But then we're back to square one when we're looking at our weight again going, i got to deal with that yet. So it's a false boundary. It's not a real boundary. It's a false boundary. And it's a false closeness. Some people will say, I don't feel very loved, but when I eat certain foods, it just comforts me. Again, there's a sense of false closeness. And then others who have been damaged from when they were younger and they have a lot of personal issues, use weight as a way to be unattractive. They don't want people to approach them for anything in the, na in the nature of sexual or any kind of intimacy. They don't like that. They don't want to deal with that aspect in their life. So that's one of the areas that internal boundaries could be out of control. Money is another area that could be a boundary that's out of control. God intended money to be a blessing to us and to others. Let's look at Luke 6:38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap for what with the measure you use it will be measured to you. You know, he's he's telling us, I want you to give. I want you to be involved in people's lives. I want you to give of your substance, your money, whatever it is. Back in those days, a lot of times I remember my mom and dad saying we don't have money, but they would give them you know, the pastor, bushels of corn, bushels of beans, or whatever, just a way of saying, here's extra. This is another way of giving. But either way, we're supposed to be in a mood where we're giving to others and helping the poor. First Timothy 6.10 tells us, For the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now the key here is that it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. It's kind of the opposite. I, I hoard money, so I have a lot of it. And then a lot of times I will give money as a way of reflecting on how much money I do have. So it's my love of money that tends to be the focus and not the use of the money. The problem of our financial outgo becomes greater than income, and that is a self-boundary issue. A self-boundary issue. And our society makes that even easier because they say, here's this little card that you can use and put it on there. But if I'm out of control on my boundaries, I may get more and more of those cards and I never really have to be responsible to actually pay it off. When we have difficulty saying no to spending, we run the risk of becoming someone else's servant. I don't know if you listen to Howard Dayton on financial matters. He uses that all the all the the borrowed servant to the lender because you have to pay that person back and they're going to hold it over your head until you pay them back. Whether it's a credit card, the government, the bank, if you borrow more than or spend more than you borrow, you're going to run into that issue. Proverbs 22:7 tells us. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrow is servant to the lender. That's the verse that he often uses on his broadcast. 
So money, again, we're just identifying out-of-control areas as we go through each one of these, these categories. And what he's trying to get us to realize is this is a symptom of an internal, internal, I can't even say, of an internal issue. It's a symptom of something inside that you need to look at that God wants you to deal with. And you say, how do you know that? How do, how do I know that that's what God wants me to deal with? Obviously, if, you're, if it's out of control, it's going to be causing pain, emotional stress, because it's not where it needs to be. Time is another area that we can get out of control. Many people feel their time is out of control, living constantly on the edge of deadline. You know, I remember in college, students learning to have good boundaries would say, I haven't even studied for my exam and it's tomorrow. I have to, I have to study a whole chapter for by tomorrow. And I'm like, you waited till now <laughs> to study for an exam tomorrow? Research will tell you those that cram into the wee hours of the morning, take the exam, do not do as well as those who study up till the day before and then don't study that night and get up the next morning and take the test. Because our mind is too intense. It's too wound up. It's not meant to be stressed that way. It's not meant to be stressed that way. It can, be, it can follow you into adult life. It can come down to things like not being on time to places, not uh, being considerate of somebody else's time. And, and there's a lot of ways that time can be an out-of-control issue. People who lose time, I think that's supposed to say, people who lose track of time are out of control, inconvenience others, whether they mean to or not. You know, my wife had to help me understand this because my thought was, you know, we're just going to go and stand there anyhow, so why don't we just walk in at the last minute? And she's like, that is disrespectful of the people we're going to visit. You need to be there just a few minutes early, not a lot, but so you can get in there. But walking in ten minutes late every time, you're disrespecting that individual by doing that. You really need to look at why you do that. So we had to change a little bit of our structure of her time. We had to get moving earlier. I made a mental note of how long it took me to get ready, and I always started about 10, 15 minutes early so that I can get there pretty much right on time. Some people will struggle with something that's called omnipotence, a sense of omnipotence, because they are unrealistic about what they can accomplish in a given amount of time. Oh, yeah, I can do that. Oh, yeah, that's a piece of cake. I'll have that done in no time, and then you're waiting, and you're waiting, and waiting, and it's not done. see that a lot in the business world, construction. Oh, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> a week, two weeks later, they're still saying, oh, yeah, we can do that. Well, <laughs> the deadline was two weeks ago. Yeah, you know, we live in a society where there's a tendency to want to take on more than we can, but that there's a personality type that will do that. They take on more and more and more, and they really can't give their full attention to anything. Others overcommit, goes hand in hand with the, with the sense of omnipotence, and end up not being able to meet all they agreed to do as far as deadlines. The difference here is that the omnipotence is not taking on more than he can handle. He's just not aware of how much time it's going to take. Where somebody who's overcommitting, they just keep on taking on jobs and jobs and jobs, and they're just stressed to no end because there's not enough time in the day to do all the jobs. And then they're frustrated. 
And if it has to do with church, then they come into the service and they can't enjoy the message or the music because they're like, I've got to go do this, I've got to get this done, he's going to be asking for that, she's going to be wanting this. And in your mind, you're thinking about all you've got to do, and you're not really listening to what the Holy Spirit wants to tell you through his word. Some people dwell so much in the present, they neglect to plan for the potential obstacles like finding a parking spot. That would also be me. <laughs> My wife will tell you. Oh, it doesn't start till this time. We'll get there. And then we get the well, for instance, when we the good example was when we went to um Winter Jam. You know, we thought, Oh, we'll have lots of time. We got there an hour early and there still wasn't enough time. We were in a parking in a uh, off ramp for like I don't know, half hour, forty five minutes before we could get there. Well the year before they didn't have that problem because they left another hour earlier, so they got there before the traffic was there. Just a good example of, of what could happen. If I don't plan for the fact that it's going to take a little time to find the parking space, whether it's the mall, going shopping, whether it's a movie, whether it's a restaurant, those are things that need to be taken into consideration. A lot of times if it's a habit that I don't do that, then eventually people start noticing he's not good with his time. He's not really caring about us or he'd be here by now. Still others rationalize and minimize the distress the cause they cause others because of their lateness. Still others rationalize. Oh, I've known them for years. They'll get over it. They won't care. That's a good way to start damaging long-term relationships. Oh, he, he'll handle it from there. It'll be fine. You know, and if you say that, or if he hears that you said that, or she hears that you said that, that's kind of hurtful. Especially if it's a pattern. Again, we're talking about out-of-control behaviors that have already stereotyped me as somebody who struggles with time. It's not talking about that one-time event that happens that causes you to be late. It's talking about a pattern of behavior. Task completion is the next one. Task completion, getting things done. Many Christians are great starters but find themselves unable to be good finishers. What he's referring to in this part of the book is when, when new believers get saved and when Christians start maturing and they get in the excitement mode of what's happening that the Lord's working in their life, it's easy to want to always raise your hand and say, I'll do that, I'll do that, let's do that. Yeah, that's a great idea. But when it comes time to actually where the rubber meets the road, they're not there a lot. They were in the front end of it saying, yeah, that's a good program, let's do that program. But they're not there to support the program, even though they were one of the ones who were like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and that, That's happened a number of times. You'll see that in a lot in churches, especially when they start a, uh, a building program. You'll hear a lot of people say, I'll pledge $100, I'll pledge $50, I'll pledge this, or pledge this, and they go back and forth, but then they leave the church down the road six months and it's like I thought a pledge was a pledge are you going to continue to put the money in you don't see anything or hear anything from again they are great starters they want to be involved in the excitement they don't plan and think ahead and so there's a pattern there of where they're always on the front end starting something but they don't finish it poor finishers are frustrated by a structured plan and tend to view the rules as confining Poor finishers, a lot of times, want to just do it their own way. They don't want to follow the guidelines that have been set forth by whoever set up the program. It's, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it my way. 
But the problem is, if you've got a team of people and your way doesn't flow with the timetable of everybody else, then you've got a problem. You've got a problem. I run into this a lot at work. They'll say, we need somebody to take control of this event. So someone will raise their hand or I'm put in charge of it and I'll start saying, this is how it needs to go. This has to happen first. Well, people just start doing it when they want to do it. I'm like, no, <laughs> this has to happen first. Then this, then this. Well, yeah, they were all gun-ho about getting involved, but they want to follow their own timetable, their own rules, and they do it their own way, and then it affects everybody that's before them and everybody after them. As Christians, we tend to get into that type of situation sometimes ourselves. Some poor finishers lack follow-through and are easily distracted. And what he means here is a lot of people really have a good heart and they want to be involved, but what happens is they run into so-and-so, and so-and-so starts talking about it, and they lose track of what they were actually doing for the project, and they get involved in talking, or they get involved in looking at pictures, or they get involved, they heard a story. I want to hear that story. Well, they're waiting for you over here. You don't really have time to stay and wait for the story here, so you need to keep on moving so that this process continues to flow. You know, those are small examples. It could be bigger. You know, when we, what we need to realize with our boundaries is when we commit to something, we need to make sure that we have the time, that we have the ability to commit, and that we have the desire, the joy of Christian service to want to do that. The worst thing that can happen is somebody is not happy in finishing their project. How does that affect you and I if we're in that team? They're kind of coming in, doing it, and eh moody and grumpy and ah, I was late. I had to get up and I didn't feel like getting up. Well, if you commit to something and it, you have an excitement about it, follow it through. That's how we show the Lord's service. That's what makes the Lord happy. Poor finishers are unable to delay gratification to complete projects when they encounter pain and give up. When it becomes difficult, all of a sudden I've got to cycle uphill. I've got to jog uphill. Poor finishers, people who struggle with being task completers, are frustrated by pain, difficulty, and they just want to give up. I really wanted to do that, but it's, it's taken a lot more than I thought it was going to take, and it's too frustrating. Some are unable to say no to the pressures of others and, and other projects and end up not having time to finish what they started. kind of goes along with the one of the ones earlier, but it's a little different in the sense that they're, they're compliant people in most cases, and they're working on something for the church or for somebody else, and then somebody else comes by and says, hey, I'm going out to set up a camcorder in the, in the, out in the woods. You want to go with me? Come on, man. We can do this and get back in no time. You'll have time to finish that up. So they get caught up in a lot of exciting things, but they don't follow through on the things they committed to. That's a task completer. kind of goes a little bit hand-in-hand in hand with time management in the sense that they don't realize the amount of time, the amount of effort, the amount of commitment. And even when they do realize it, it's like, but I don't want to put out that much. Well, then that's something that I need to be aware of on the front end. And that's something that I need to deal with before the Lord if I'm claiming to be a believer and be excited and on fire for him, and yet it's only when things are going well. That's kind of a little bit of a discrepancy, isn't it? <clears throat> I'm only excited when it's going well. 
you walk the Christian walk very long, it's not going to go well all the time, is it? <laughs> you got to be in it for the long haul. The tongue. I can't remember where it was at in the Bible. I was trying to find it where it says, The tongue is a world of iniquity. <laughs> Isn't that in James somewhere, I think? I couldn't find it. There is a James 3, 9 through 10. How we use language can, can, can deeply affect the quality of our relationships. All right, what's he saying? We develop new friendships. We do, every day, new believers come in. Every day, we need new people that we want to be a witness to. He's saying that sometimes if we're not careful, the quality of our language, how we talk, the tone of voice we use, how we talk to people, if we're not careful, we can, we can offend people. Um, my mother used to always quote a verse out of the New Testament where it says, always be above reproach. Don't put yourself in a situation where it looks like you may not really care or you might be a bad, bad testimony to the Lord. How you talk, the tone of voice, the way you respond to them and react to them will affect the quality of relationships you have. And you will know. Because if you're being curt with your tongue and sharp with your reactions, people start to pull away. They don't, they don't want to be treated that way. But keep in mind, I'm always a witness for the Lord whenever I'm doing doesn't matter where I'm at. You don't leave that at the church, at the front door. I'm always going to have to be responsible and held accountable for how I treat people, saved and unsaved. Because unsaved, it's my testimony. Saved just because they're a believer doesn't mean they're going to understand. I need to treat them cordially. I need to make sure that I'm respecting them the way that I would want to be respected. James 3, 9 to 10 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praises and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. This should not be. Out of the mouth. I think there's another verse that talks about... Um, I, I lost it, but I just thought of it when I was reading that one. Where it talks, can a spring both put forth pure water and salt water? No, it can't. So what's going on at the source of the spring? What's going on in the heart? Can it put forth both praising and cursing? No. I need to really look at it because something's not where it needs to be in my relationship with the Lord. Often people will have difficulty setting verbal boundaries. These people aren't aware that they even have the problem. Often people who have difficulty setting boundaries aren't really aware they have the problem. <coughs> I think he's emphasizing this point because if you go into the New Testament and actually even in the Old Testament, it talks about provoking one another until the day of Christ. Meaning that he doesn't mean make them angry. He means you need to tell somebody if they're not being a good testimony. If you're close to that person, you have a relationship, and they're saying something nasty about somebody, it's your responsibility as much as it is anybody else's to say to that person, you know, that's not really a good way to talk about somebody. Because if they hear that you're talking about them that way, that's not good. It's not a good testimony. Then you have the people who will rationalize. Well, they deserve it. <laughs> Do you deserve it? Judge not, lest you be judged with the same judgment whereby you judge. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's too many verses in the Bible that condemn that. But most believers don't want to hear that. They want to be able to have both. 
the good and the bad. They want to be able to say what they want to say and at the same time say, I, I know Christ. Proverbs 10.19 When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Sometimes the best thing is don't say anything. Don't respond because if you, my mom used to also say, you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Be careful that you're not becoming a gossip or a backbiter. Proverbs 17:27. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even-tempered. Two identifying characteristics that David was talking about back in the Proverbs and Solomon. There are Psalms that also refer to bridling the tongue. And what they were talking about is people will know about your relationship with Christ if you use words, if you're careful how you approach them, and if you're not always blowing off in anger. If you show restraint in both of those areas, I've had people say to me, even at work, because you know, when you're a manager, it's kind of like, it, he's a manager, he's going to do that. Well, I don't do that. And a couple of the girls come up to me, and when they came into my office, they said, we've never had a manager quite like you, and that's not to toot my horn. I was just trying to be careful and have a good testimony. And I said, what do you mean? They said, that last manager we had, whoa, if you got on his bad side, he just jumped down your throat, and you had to deal with it. He said, you tell us that we're doing wrong stuff, but you don't jump down our throat. And I said, well, I would hope so, because you know, part of my witness as a Christian is that I'm not going to treat you that way, because I don't want to be treated that way. And actually, I think it creates a better bond with your employees. It creates a better bond with your family. Uh, a lot of times, you're going to have to actually help your children realize you don't talk to people that way. Sometimes we as Christians and believers with each other need to do that. Whoa, hey guy, girl, listen to how you're talking. Are you exemplifying Christ at this point? When we can't hold back or set boundaries, what comes out from our lips? Our words are in charge, not us. When we respond without thinking and we don't have restraint, what comes out is out of control boundaries and what comes from our lips are words that are in charge, not you or I. Not the Holy Spirit. I'm not even in charge and control my words when I react in anger. How many times have you spouted off to somebody because you were so mad at them and afterwards you went, I shouldn't have said that. That just wasn't right to treat him that way. I'm mad at him, and I have a right to be angry at him, but to treating him that way was wrong. You'll know. The Holy Spirit's going to stir that within your heart. He's going to let you know that. Another area that can be out of control is sexuality. And I don't know that I need to say that too much because just look at the world around us. But let's look at sexuality that's out of control. The individual caught up in out-of-control sexual behaviors generally feels deeply isolated and shameful. A lot of times when we hear about somebody, the first thing out of our mouth, oh, he's a pervert. And we start talking about how bad they are. Did Christ die for that pervert? Does he love that individual? James Dobson went and met with Ted Bundy. Anybody remember Ted Bundy? Murdered and raped all those women but somewhere in, in prison 
came to his senses, asked to talk to Dr. Dobson, nobody else. And he talked about how isolated, how depressed, how fantasy-driven he became, how narrow-minded he became, and all he thought about, it took control of his mind. If you have the chance, go back and listen to or read about that last interview with him before he was executed. He said, I, he said, I didn't have any remorse. I lost that ability. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about at some point you're given over to a reprobate mind. I think that was a good example of a reprobate mind. It was out of control. Do I pray for individuals like that? Do I have a heart for that type of individual? Only you can answer that. Only you can answer that. This keeps that individual, this keeps what is broken in the soul, in his heart, in the very center of him, a prisoner to darkness and out of the light of relationships with God and others. One of the things we realize with addictions is that they need to be around other people who are recovering who will look at them and say, you're just BSing yourself if you think you can do that. They need the honesty, they need the comfort, they need the encouragement, and yet they need the, the face-to-face confrontation to say, you're going to be drinking or you're going to be back in that porn shop before I even get home tonight, if you think that you can do that. They need honesty, they need relationships, they need God's Word. That's why we have Celebrate Recovery. We need to give that instruction on how they can overcome it and then have groups where they can talk about how they're overcoming it. Sexuality takes on a life of its own, unreal and fantasy-driven. When somebody is out of control in the area of sexuality, it dominates their thought life. They see somebody going by. They fantasize. Oh, look at that one. Oh, look at that one. They see a magazine. Oh, what's in that magazine? Open that up. Their mind goes to that pornography. It goes to that sexuality. When a movie comes on, and they know there's a risque part. They can't wait. Their mind just gets stuck on a one, one track, and that is the sexual excitement, the incentment. That's kind of sad, isn't it? If they're in families and relationships, they don't feel love. Their mind just can't leave. It's a lot of shame, and it's a lot of sadness. And after a while, the only way they can deal with that sadness and that shame is if they go for something that excites them again. So it's a vicious cycle. Sexual boundarylessness, <laughs> they used it in the book, I put it in here, uh, becomes a tyrant, demanding and insatiable, very much like other addictions. Sexual boundarylessness becomes a tyrant. It overcomes and takes over their thought life. It overtakes their relationships with their families. And worst of all, it overtakes their relationship with God. The inability to say no to one's own lust drives them deeper into despair and hopelessness. I would encourage you, like I said, that was a good interview that Dobson did with Ted Bundy. It's hard because he does talk about some of the things that happen. But to look at his eyes and to see the the hollowness, the emptiness. I can't think of anybody different than the man in the tombs. You know, the, the guy that lived in the graveyard. He was driven by demons. And when Christ came into the graveyard, what did he say? Jesus of Nazareth, leave me. 
I can't bear to have you here. Light and dark comes together. And darkness cannot stand the light. And Jesus cast the demons out of him. You might be the light to somebody around you if your heart is in line with God and you have a burden for those individuals. Alcohol and substance abuse is another out-of-control behavior. Probably the clearest example of internal boundary problems, alcohol and drug dependence creates devastation in all areas of an addict's life. It creates devastation in every component, every aspect, every arena of their life. And yet they're driven to go back for more. They want that feeling. It's not real, but it feels real when they're using. And it just overcomes them. Drug addiction is difficult for adults who have some semblance of character and boundaries. But it is extremely devastating and lifelong debilitating to children whose boundaries are delicate and forming. I like the way he worded it. You know, you and I are adults. If we developed an addiction to alcohol or drugs, we have a certain amount of character. And I've even seen this when I worked with people in, in, in our uh, chemical dependency unit. There would be those ones that came in, they would be adults, and you could tell they were just remorseful, they were sick about what they've done to their lives. And then you'd have these young people come in that started using as young as 10, 11, drinking their dad's beer, smoking his cigarettes. Kids and teenagers in the, in the area that were older gave them marijuana. One thing led to another. They don't have their boundaries established because they started living in the streets. They lived in the survival of the fittest. Anybody ever read The Lord of the Flies or see that old movie? Kind of sick movie, wasn't it? But it just goes to show the depravity of man, though, what could happen if there weren't structure, boundaries, government, rules. Left to ourselves, we become a survival of, of fittest. We become like the animals. You know, whoever's the biggest and strongest just kills everybody else so that he stays in control. That's our human nature. We each have that same sin nature. Why does my, my no not work? We talked about a number of areas. There may be more that you could actually list yourself as far as out-of-control areas. We're going to shift gears a little bit, though, and talk a little bit about why does my no, saying no, not work? We are our own worst enemies. You and I are our own worst enemies. Internal boundary problems can be concealed for quite some time before being seen or evident to others. You know, that's the reason why we're our own worst enemy. Because when we have boundary problems, whether it's sin, whether it's just you know, we're trying but we're not really making progress, and we don't seek the help of others or put ourselves in the light of the Scriptures and God's Word and, and God's Church, when we don't make that commitment, we're allowing ourselves to fall prey to the world's environment. We're allowing ourselves to continue down that path of that temptation, that lust that's pulling us away, as James says. And as we continue to allow those lusts to come into our mind, eventually it becomes sin, is what he tells us in chapter 1 of James. When the lust has conceived, when I've thought it so much, I finally say, I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to be that way. 
or I'm going to spend that money, or I'm going to have that sexual relation, or I'm going to drink. You think about it, you think about it, you think about it, you think about it, and then you eventually, I mean, if that's all you keep looking at, that's where you're going. It's that simple. We are our own worst enemies. Left to ourselves, we could self-destruct. Since the fall of man, we withdraw from relationships when we most need them to protect our secret. We pull away from people because we want, don't want anybody to know our secret. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden hid from, the, from God in the garden. The minute they disobeyed and they ate, it says their eyes were opened. And what did they do? They made clothes out of leaves because they knew they were naked and they hid. When God came looking for them, they didn't want to be around them. They had shame. We need each other. We need that kind of accountability. Ecclesiastes 4.10 says, If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If we continue to isolate and isolate and isolate, we have no one to help us back out of that quagmire. We have no one because we've isolated ourselves from everybody. Nobody knows really where we're at. We need others to pull us up. Instead of bringing these painful, frightening feelings and problems into the light of relationship with God and others, they often retreat to their room to try to work out the problem alone. You know, as I think back over my life and having to deal with my own sin issues, he hit the nail right on the head. When you want to sin, you don't stick around. People are going to tell you not to. <laughs> You get off by yourself. When you're mad, what do you do? When you're so angry you could just tear their face off, what do you do? You go off and you pout and you simmer and you get mad and you think about how you're going to back and tear the face off. If not verbally, right? Don't we do that? Yeah. Oh, I'm so mad. I could just smack him. My wife will say that once in a while. I'll say, be careful, hon. Be careful. <laughs> John 15, 1-6 I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such, as branch, such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. You know, that verse we've always used as a body of believers, you know, that we need to stay in Christ, but it's, it's got deeper roots. That applies to us internally whether we're in the church or not. That applies right down to the very center of our heart. He is the life spring that gives us spirituality. He is the one who gives us the power to overcome sin. If we don't realize that that verse is just not something we use about the body, it's something that we're to use in our own personal life. It's from him that we find that strength, that wisdom, that courage to overcome those self-defeating behaviors that maybe nobody else knows about and that you don't want anybody to about it. You don't want anybody else to notice it. Well, they don't have to if you deal with it at the core. But I will tell you that is what a testimony is about. 
It's about our willingness to talk about what Christ has done for us. That's how other people will relate to you. That's how the world will see you and go, if God can do that in your life, what will he do in mine? You go to 2 Corinthians 3, that's where he talks about the same consolation you found in Christ, you will be responsible to give to others. You have a responsibility. It's a directive. We can neither sustain life or emotional repair without bonding to God and others as support and accountability. You know, it's kind of what we're saying. We have to sustain that spiritual life by being in the Word, by being in church, by being with other believers, by putting off our old ways of dealing with things. We need the support and the accountability. Another common mistake is I can use willpower to solve my problem. You know, I, I say this in, in all the addiction programs that I work in. You got yourself into this mess. What makes you think you're going to get yourself out of it? If you deceived yourself that deeply that you've hurt your family and your children, what makes you think you're going to have the power to get out of it yourself? The program that's working is the one that relies on other people and specifically on God. That's the program that's working. If you want to try it on willpower, more power to you. I used to go to the meetings with them, and I liked that one time this old guy would always come in. I saw him do it a number of times. When some young guy would come in there spouting off about how he was going to do this, the old guy would lay a 20 on the table, and he said, here's a 20. Do you want to go back to that bar and have fun with them and not drink? Take my 20. Do you think you can drink one beer? And he did that quite often. One time one guy did take it, unfortunately. You know, we don't know if he went back and drank, but the assumption was he's going back. <laughs> but think about that. The challenge was you can't do it yourself. You need groups. You need other people. You need God. The main problem with self-will is that it makes us an idol over God and denies the power of the relationship promised on the cross. The main problem with doing it yourself is that it makes you God, and that's why it won't work. It makes you God, and you become the idol, and it's denying the power of what Christ did on the cross and gave to us all. All the above internal boundary problems cannot be solved in a vacuum, in other words, alone. We need the support of others, especially as God is in our midst. We need the support of others. We can't do it on our own. Establishing boundaries within yourself. Here's some suggestions. Welcome consequences as a teacher. Pain becomes a teacher according to the law of sowing and reaping. In other words, if somebody is letting you come have the natural consequences of whatever your out-of-control behavior is, realize that that out-of-control behavior is something you need to deal with. You need to welcome that person's honesty to say, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. If you're dealing with rebellious teenagers, you need to allow them to experience the consequences of their behavior. Sometimes they need to fail grade if they won't study. Sometimes they need other types of failures. They need to fail their driver's license because they already know it all. <laughs> okay, you got it down. Let's go. And then they, once they come back to their senses, they realize, I'm not ready. The consequences will tell them there's pain the way you're doing it. We need to face the confrontation by others about the destructiveness of our behaviors. What's it meaning? 
When somebody says to me, you know, the way you're treating me is just not right. You know, you're not taking into my feelings into consideration. I need to realize that type of conf confrontation is trying to get me to realize that some of my behaviors are hurtful to other people. When my director set me down when we were traveling the second year on the team and he said to me, your New Year's resolution is to learn not to be so critical of other people. I was like, what, what, what? He goes, you look at everybody else's weaknesses, then you go after them and you pick on them. You pick on them mercilessly. It's causing dissension in our team. That was the best thing he could have ever done for me. Because no one had ever said, stop picking on people's weaknesses. That was the way I survived. It was hurtful. It was painful. But it changed the way I, I treated people in life and on that team. Consequences will follow if we don't heed their feedback. Consequences will follow, and we will learn that, if we don't heed that Christian brother or sister's feedback. Words precede action and give a chance to turn from our destructiveness before we have to suffer. What, and I, I learned this personally, that I had to realize that people were going to say, please don't do that. And if I heed that and stop the destructive pattern, then change happens. But if I don't heed that, the consequences will come again and I'll have pain again. That's part of the process. Surround yourself with people who are loving and supportive. We're going right back through some of the stuff we talked about earlier. Modify that checklist that we did earlier when we were talking about boundaries and deal with it within yourself. Those who act as a support network need to be careful, though, not to become parental and critical. When you start to trust somebody or that you allow them to give you honest feedback, there also needs to be a carefulness and a warning to the person who's being your support. Don't be critical. Don't try to parent them. Be supportive. Love them as a friend. And another warning that he gives to those who, t who support others. You need to be careful that you don't become a rescuer and enabler. Don't bail them out all the time. Don't bail them out all the time. As you deal with real needs, fail, get empathetic feedback, suffer the consequences, and are restored. Those are the steps in the process. You build stronger internal boundaries each time. So what's he saying? I have a desire to change, so I start trying to change, and I'm going to fail at some point. I need to get back up. Keep trying. Don't give up. But I need to keep getting back up, and I need to, to make progress on not dealing with negative consequences. And as I make progress, eventually I have strengthened internal boundaries that says, this is the way you're going to walk from here on out. It's a step-by-step -step process. They did go to one other thing that I'll just mention and will be done. They mentioned that children who have been victimized, adults who were victimized as children, really need professional help to overcome some of theirs because what happened was their boundaries were damaged. They don't have a sense of right and wrong behaviors. A lot of times victims of sexual abuse become violent predators. 85% will eventually deal with something in that area because they don't know what's normal. A child's boundaries that have been violated grow up in life sometimes believing that's their role in life. And young men or young women, some will take on the victim side, some will take on the abuser side. They need professional help. If you're aware of that and you have those things, my encouragement is find a good Christian counselor. Don't be afraid to talk to them about it.
don't be afraid to talk about it. Because as that person helps you to start identifying, listen to your thought process here. That's not normal. You learned that in a very bad environment. This is what we need to talk about in restructuring it. So you have to do a lot of cognizant restructuring when you're dealing with children, even adults who were victimized as children. I know we ran a little bit long, had a lot to cover, but I appreciate your time. We'll go ahead and close and go into the next uh, service.